morning. Awesome. Uh, hey, we're going to be continuing our series today on practice by looking at simple living. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be at Mark chapter 10. Uh, or if you have your apps, you can turn to that and we'll get to that within the message. All right, let's pray. Father, as we look at um, the lives that we are living, the attachments that we have, uh, the priorities in our everything, Lord, we hand it to you. We give it to you. And Lord, we ask that you would meet us where we're at today, that you would speak to us, and that you would just show us what that abundant life looks like, that you have promised us and that you have called us and that you are calling us into. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, hey, how about everyone repeat after me, trash-a-lanch. Trash-a-lanch. All right, so what do you think I'm talking about? How many of you have heard of uh, hoarders? Hoarders? Hoarding? Any of you watched any of this episode? So I'm going to spare you from uh, a clip from, tr- from hoarders and hoarding because it gives me the heebie-jeebies. But uh, <laughs> the, the, the thing about that show... Uh, is trash a is the word that Ryland's dad calls the sound of garbage tumbling off a pile of junk. Now, this is not them, you know, on the weekend going to the neighborhood dump and, you know, just looking at trash being uh, thrown away and crushed. And, oh, this is inside their house. They say trash a every time they hear trash falling off one of their heaps. Uh, Okay, well, 16-year-old Grace, uh, she has gotten used to this kind of living because she actually has learned to climb the mountains of clothes and garbage in her living room. Uh, She has a bed to sleep in, uh, but she's had to climb these mountains of clothes uh, to even get to a computer uh, in the corner of a room. That's how much stuff they have in their home. But at least she has a bed, right? At least she has a bed. Because Randy... Uh, His hoarding has gotten to the point where he has a bedroom, he has a bed, but there's so many things in his bedroom, like filing cabinets, you know, those old school TV monitors, like not TV monitors, computer monitors, like the big ones, it's just like everything, everywhere, towers, and there's this one walkway in his bedroom that has trash on it. It's lower than all the other piles, Uh, and he actually just puts a blanket on top of it. He has a bed! Right? But he puts a blanket on top of it and just lies back with his pillow and that's how he goes to sleep. Right? He hasn't been to the toilet in his house in years. He has a toilet, a working one. But when he goes into it, his head is touching the ceiling and he's not a giant. So he actually goes to the toilet in gas stations and restaurants. I mean, imagine that. Right? How many times do you go to the restroom every single day? Right? I mean, I mean, imagine that. And then there's Gary. Oh, Gary. Gary was upset that his neighbors wouldn't mind their own business. I mean, it's his property, right? Like, if it's your property, who cares what your neighbors have to say, right? Right? But his neighbors apparently didn't appreciate the fact that he was sleeping on his front lawn. His neighbors apparently didn't appreciate the fact that he had mountains of clothes and food and his valuables in his front lawn. Why? It's not because he doesn't have a house. He has a house. It's just there's too much stuff in it that he has to live outside. 
Now, here's the thing. This quote fascinated me. This is what he says about food. He was proud. He's like, I have an iron stomach. And this is what he says about food. Food never goes bad. Only your ability to digest it goes bad. (laughs) I eat stuff that's two, three, four weeks old all the time, unrefrigerated, and I never get sick. I know you probably know someone who's like, due dates are just like, you know, it's some just marketing scheme. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure you probably know someone who thinks that, but unrefrigerated, two, three, four weeks here. And this is what he says, meat and anything, <laughs> I can eat anything I want. Okay, so shows like this, hoarders, hoarding, I mean, that is what helped move hoarding from the margins to the mainstream. So we, we, you may not be a hoarder or a digital hoarder, but probably you are to some extent. Right, think about this. Do you have things that you haven't used in years, but you can't seem to throw it away because you might use it one day? What about your closet? How many of your clothes are just sitting there and you don't want to give it away or donate or, or throw it away because you're, you're just waiting. It's like you just got to lose a couple more pounds and then you're going to fit back into it, right? Or maybe you're thinking, hey, hey, fashion like just cycles, right? So as long as I hold on to this, in another 10 years, it'll be cool again, right? Do you have piles of magazines, newspapers, books that uh, keep tipping over? Or, or how about your children? Do any of your children sleep with a lot of stuff in their bed? Uh, my kids don't anymore. Because <laughs> apparently it's a symptom of hoarding later in life. Uh, do you like collecting things? Do you enjoy shopping at thrift stores? Uh, not because you actually need it, but just because you love deals. And that's why you go. Do you have trouble making decisions, organizing, categorizing? Here's another thing. When, when your computer crashes, do you get anxiety when your browser can't restore all your tabs? And you're like, but I had all these tabs that I was going to read. Do you get anxiety from that? Or maybe your inbox, email inbox is never at zero. Now, friends, you may not have compulsive hoarding disorder, Uh, But if you said yes to any of those things, you may have the symptoms. So why is hoarding a thing, right? Believe it or not, there are about 19 million Americans who are are, are compulsive hoarders. Now, I'm not just saying like, hey, you may be a pack rat or or you might have a cluttered desktop or you might have symptoms. No, there are way more than that, right? Uh, This is just compulsive hoarders. Now, how many of you know someone with Alzheimer's? Or, yeah, majority of us know someone either personally or we have a friend uh, whose parent or grandparent or, you know, we, we all know someone. I mean, it's pretty common to know someone with Alzheimer's. Well, did you know there's actually three times more people who have compulsive hoarding disorder than Alzheimer's? No one talks about it. That's all. Now... After watching a couple of these shows and, and doing some research, Christina and I, actually it was probably more me than her, uh, I, <laughs> I went into my closet and I, I donated two bags of clothes. Uh, because it was, I had clothes where I was like, oh, you know, I know that's going to come back in fashion or, or maybe I just don't feel like a green person anymore. Uh, I, I'm wearing a lot of blues and grays and maybe one day I'll feel more like a green person. Uh, but I, but I didn't, and I was just like, I, I know it sounds really dumb, right? But, uh, I was like, I literally got rid of all my green clothes cause I don't wear green. I don't know. Like it's just, yeah, there's probably too much information. Uh, so why is hoarding a thing, right? Why? Okay. Why? Think about it. Uh, is it because we have that much 
cash, discretionary cash, or, or, or maybe is it because Black Friday, coming up, uh, is not Black Friday anymore, it's like a week, if not longer, or maybe is Amazon like the Antichrist, and is Amazon the one to blame, because it's now, not only can you get two days free shipping, it's like here in Nashville, you can get two hour shipping, right? I mean, is that why? Is that why we just want to keep on buying and buying and buying? Or maybe, maybe perhaps uh, hoarding is a thing and it's continuing to increase because we believe uh, and we've believed the lie that has been fed to us that we are what we own, that our homes reflect our self-worth, that the cars we drive are an extension of our personality, our reflection of ourselves, that our phones are actually as much us as it is a thing. And, and then when we get that new car, when we get that new phone, we're happy, right? Like we're, we're, we're happy. And, but then what happens the next year? Right? It's that same cycle of dissatisfaction over and over and over again. Now this reminds me of, of the words uh, of Tyler Durden who, from that cult classic Fight Club, that movie. Uh, he, says, he says it like this. He put it really well. The things you own end up owning you. The things you own end up owning you. Now, I wonder if this is why people have turned to minimalism. How many of you have heard of minimalism? Right? I mean, oftentimes this is posed as... This, I mean, most of us know that just getting more stuff doesn't satisfy. Right? Most of us know that. I mean, it's been around that, that promise, that lie has been fed to us long enough that a lot of us are still disillusioned. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to buy new stuff, uh, but I think most of us know that it, it, can't, that it really doesn't satisfy. So is it minimalism? Because a lot of people have turned to minimalism as a way to escape the rat race. I, I recently watched this documentary on minimalism, and it followed these two guys that were climbing the corporate ladder, and they gave it all up, and this is what one of them said. I had everything I ever wanted. I had everything I was supposed to have. Everyone around me said, you're successful, successful, but really I was miserable. There was this gaping hole in my life, so I tried to fill that void the same way that many people do with stuff, lots of stuff. I was filling the void with consumer purchases. I was spending money faster than I was earning it, attempting to buy my way to happiness. I thought I'd get there one day. Eventually, I mean, happiness had to be somewhere just around the corner, right? I was living paycheck to paycheck, living for a paycheck, living for stuff, but I wasn't living at all. Now, this documentary was fascinating, and uh, it actually led me to binge-watching some shows on tiny homes. You know what I'm talking about? It's fascinating, right? Tiny homes. Uh, but here's what stood out to me the most, okay? Though these guys gave up the American dream, Though they gave up this dream of owning land, a white picket fence, and, and the such, right, of that pursuit of stuff and materials and consumerism, uh, and, and though they gave it all up, here's what I noticed in that documentary. Minimalism didn't seem to work either. <laughs> they didn't seem happier than on the flip side. They didn't seem better off. And here's what one of them said. I think people buy because they're trying to fulfill this void inside of them. 
I know that because that was me. But no matter how much stuff we buy or how many different fads we try, we don't become a more whole person. We keep looking and this hunger never gets fulfilled. Did you catch that? The hunger never gets fulfilled. It never gets fulfilled. I agree that this hunger never gets fulfilled through buying. I agree that this hunger never gets fulfilled through just owning more stuff. If you've seen those hoarders TV shows, you you see what happens um, when, when family and friends try to come. Right? And if you've, you watch one, you feel sad, you're like, you feel kind of disgusted, you're like, this is gross, and how can someone live like this? And then, and then you begin watching a bunch of them, and then you just kind of get like, oh, like, how, how are you so stupid? Like, you can't even use your toilet, right? Like, we get that, especially as we kind of watch more, I was like, how can you live like that? And we get very judgmental, and we get very critical, and then we're like, your, your, fam- your only sister ha- is trying to help you. Your only sister has given up a week to help you, and you have just dropped all these F-bombs and chased her away. Well, good luck now. Right? We do this, right? We think this. I mean, like, how can you be so dense? And then we might have, most of us probably know a hoarder. Uh, if you don't, probably not someone who could go on the TV show, but they're a pack rat, right? And have you ever tried to help them get rid of some of their stuff? How does it end? <laughs> not good, right? Not good. It doesn't. Why? Because the stuff we own are extensions of ourselves. I'm not saying that that's a good way to see things. But it's how we view stuff. So when people try to help those hoarders, when friends, when the people that love them the most are trying to help them, they feel upset, they feel hurt, they feel betrayed, they feel abandoned. Why? Because it's like their friends and family are throwing them away. Because we have this association with our stuff. But the opposite doesn't fulfill either, does it? Getting rid of everything. Becoming a minimalist. Trying to get rid of your stuff just because you're like, okay, well that doesn't work, so I'm going to flip on that side. For those who have become minimalists, that doesn't necessarily fulfill either. Because there's really, as we see in Mark chapter 10, only one person who can fulfill And his name is Jesus. So let's look at Mark chapter 10 and and look at his interaction uh, with this man, uh, with this rich young ruler. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, he, referring to Jesus, as Jesus was setting out on a journey, uh, a man ran up, knelt down before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. And honor your father and mother. He said to them, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him. And then said to him, You lack one thing. 
Go, sell all you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Now here's what we know about this man that Jesus is interacting with, right? Number one, we know that he's spiritual. We know that he's spiritual. We know that he respects Jesus as a spiritual leader and teacher of the day. Why? Because he didn't just walk to Jesus, he ran to Jesus, and he kneeled in front of Jesus. I mean, today, when's the last time you ever kneeled in front of someone? Willingly. Right? You don't, you don't do that. We don't do that. Why? Because it's a sign of surrender. It's a sign of giving up. It's a sign of you are better than me or you are superior than me or you have, you know, whatever you want to fill that blank in, we don't do that. Yet this man kneels in front of Jesus. So we know that he's spiritual and we know that he respects Jesus, right? We know that this rich young ruler uh, believes eternal life exists, but he also believes that eternal life can be earned by what you do. In other words, we see that he's religious. He's a ruler and he's rich. Now, it's hard to tell if he's a hoarder or if he just has expensive taste, but based on his response, we see, we see this really important thing here, that he actually has separated his wealth from himself. He has separated his spirituality here on Sunday Saturday in that day, he separated that with his wealth, with his money, with his life. He separated it out. What's fascinating here, though, is that Jesus doesn't rebuke the guy. At least not outrightly or, or forthrightly. Jesus, in verse 21, look at what he says. Look at what it says there. Looking at him, Jesus what? Rebuked him? Yelled at him? Disdained him? Looked down on him? No, Jesus loved him. Looking at him, Jesus loved him. Those words are fascinating because in Jesus' interaction with Pharisees, with Sadducees, with scribes, with the religious leaders of the day, do you ever remember a time where it says Jesus loved them? Maybe you got, maybe, I mean, obviously Jesus loves everyone, right? Uh, but, but he, it, it doesn't necessarily say that. So why in this passage does it say, looking at him, Jesus loved him? You know, I believe it's because Jesus saw that this rich young ruler was sincerely pursuing God. That he was sincerely wanting to live a life that was honoring to God. That according to everything that he was taught, everything that he knew, he was trying to live a life that brought glory to God. And he did whatever he knew he had to do in order to achieve that. And then Jesus loves him and confronts him with these words. Friends, as a side note, this is not just back then. I mean, we have people in our world today, friends of yours, family members, people across this world who are trying to sincerely find their way to life, 
but they don't know how to get there. Perhaps God has placed you in their life because you know the way there. Don't assume that if a friend doesn't believe in Jesus, it means that they have rejected Jesus. Maybe they just think Jesus is a religion and following him is a list of do's. Maybe that's what they think. Why do you think in the Middle East there's such hatred among Muslims toward Christians? Why? It's not because they actually, many of them know what Christians actually believe, but it's because they see the West as Christian. They see what is coming out of Hollywood as being Christian. And they're like, if that is Christianity, well, we better kill all the Christians. You know, that it's false assumptions. Why do you believe actually that I have many missionary friends who have shared this with me where there are Muslims and there are not only in the Middle East, but I know Chinese uh, people who are, who are Buddhist or non-religious in many respects. And Jesus is actually appearing to them in their dreams. Right? Muslims call Jesus Isa. I have a, there's, a, there's a member in my life group. She used to be Muslim. But she saw that it didn't pan out the way that they had told. And they're like, well, Muslims talk about Jesus, but who is Jesus? And she began seeking God and she found Jesus. Friends, this man, this rich young ruler, is not just a story contained within pages from a thousand, couple thousand years ago. These rich young rulers are all around us today. And just like Jesus was looking at this rich young ruler with love, imagine if we saw our neighbors who didn't know Jesus with the same kind of love. Jesus was trying to teach this man, okay, I know that you have been pursuing God, but here's what you need to understand. Eternal life is not a result of what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. It's about what Jesus is saying. It's about what I have done. And it's then our response to that. So as a result, our heart, our motives, our intentions, our life, our everything need to be submitted and laid before the Lord. And if you look at this man in verse 21 and on and verse 22, we see that for this man, it was his wealth and it was his riches that he was using that was, that was, that was actually blocking him from experiencing true and everlasting life with our Lord. Keeping the commandments like not murdering, not committing adultery, not stealing, not bearing false witness, not defying, honoring his father. I mean, uh, that is not what the issue was for him. And and I'm sure that's probably not what what the issue is for us. It was the Benjamins, right? Isn't it always the Benjamins? (laughs) Now, is Jesus here saying then, That to inherit eternal life, you need to sell everything you have? Is that what he's saying here in verse 21? Is he saying that to, to inherit eternal life, not only to the rich young ruler, but to us, uh, you need to give to the poor, build a tiny house, and become a minimalist? Right? Is that is that what we need to read and understand from this passage? No, actually, if you look at what Jesus is saying. 
And, you know, Jesus, he said, you know the commandments, right? Do not murder, do not commit. Those were the Ten Commandments. Those were the latter half of the Ten Commandments, if you recognize that. And what Jesus is actually saying here and what he's saying in verse 21 is he's saying, hey, to follow God, you need to obey the first commandment. Right, this man was obeying the latter, but he forgot the first, which is do not have other gods beside me. This man, for this man, his wealth, his treasure, his possessions, what he owned were God for him. Everything else he did that was spirituality, that was religion, that was separated from himself, but in the core of his being, in the core of his being, his God was the Benjamins. Right? His wealth and his material possessions occupied the place that only God should have had. So here's what he did. He took a good thing. Money is good. Money's not bad. Possessions aren't bad. That's not what I'm saying here. But when we make good things our ultimate things, that, that is when they become gods to us. I mean, isn't that why money is so addictive? I mean, the, the fact that money is so addictive and the, the fact that money seems to create self-sufficiency in our lives, I wonder if that's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Or I wonder if that's why Jesus talked about money so much. Right? He said, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And I wonder if that's why it says in 1 Timothy 6.17, instruct those who are rich in the present age. You may not feel like you're rich, but you are rich. You are. In the global scheme of things, the fact that you have more than two outfits means you're rich. The fact that you can eat multiple meals a day, even if it's junk, because <laughs> healthy food is expensive, unfortunately, means you're who Jesus is talking, what, what the Bible is talking about, what, what, we re, what we see God is sharing with us and speaking to us right now. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or not to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. The uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. I love what Tim Keller says about this man, this rich young ruler. He says it like this, when Jesus called this young man to give up his money, the man started to grieve because money was for him what the father was for Jesus. Money was the center of his identity. To lose money would have been to lose himself. That's why hoarders act the way they do when you try to get rid of their stuff. Underneath Jesus' words to this man, underneath Jesus' words to each and every one of us, this is what he's saying. Friends, you are not what you owe. You are not what you own. Your identity cannot be tied up in the neighborhood that you live in, the home you have, your furniture, your gadgets, your car, your clothes, what vacations you take, where you go and what you do. 
Your identity cannot be tied up in any of that because all of it can be taken away. And if all that is taken away, what do you have left? Have you lost yourself? Or would you be in a place where you say, Lord, like Job, you give and you take away, yet blessed be your name. Would you be able to say that? Now, I get it. I mean, if your car was totaled, if it's a junker and it's not even on it, if you don't even have insurance on it, you probably wouldn't care that much. I mean, you would because you need to scrounge up some more money to buy another car. But if your car was brand new, like one of those insurance company commercials, brand new and a week later it gets totaled, right? Nationwide is on your side. <laughs> Whatever it is that they say, you know, we're like, oh, so who is your trust in? The insurance company? Is the insurance company your God? God were to take whatever it is that you hold in your hands away, how would you react? Maybe you've gotten to the place where you're like, yeah, but cars, it's one thing. Homes, maybe not the home. Okay, maybe the home, but not the stuff in it. If I lost those photos, what would I do? If I lost that sentimental gift from my grandfather, what would I do? So we get fireproof safes, we save everything on the cloud, we do whatever we can, and we're like, oh God, you can take it all away. And God's like, well, what about your life? Okay, maybe, but not my spouse's life, not my kids' lives. You, you God, take me, don't take them. I couldn't live if you took them away. And we walk down the list, We walk down the list. We all hold something dear and close to our hearts. And the fact is, a lot of that, what that is, they actually, the reason we hold it so close to our hearts is because we've identified so much with it. If the car, if your car that you have poured so much money into if that is a thing that is that you would be devastated if you lost, it's because the car is your God. If it's your children, and yes, I'm not saying that we should ever get to a point where we wouldn't grieve the loss of our children, but if you wouldn't even be able, be able to worship together with the family of God, And I'm not saying that you could resume the relationship that you had with them before, but if you couldn't at that moment cry out to God, I'm not even saying that you need to open up the scriptures in that moment, but if you couldn't even at that moment say, God, have mercy on me. And instead you turn your back against God, then your children are your God. Just fill in the blank. If God were to take everything away from you, would you still be able to say, blessed be your name? 